0: If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and find 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, sometimes we take a whole book of the Bible in a Sunday. Sometimes we take a chunk of verses. This is going to be one of those weeks where we literally take our whole time to unpack one verse in the Bible. And it's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Um, here's what I want to say as we dive into this. This is week 4 of our Advent series, A Thrill of Hope. And if you haven't been here the last three weeks, here's what we've been doing. Every week we've been talking about the 2,000, excuse me, the 4,000 plus year history of God promising to bring about rescue and reconciliation for a broken, fallen world. So if you study the Old Testament, it's just about hopeful longing. It's about trusting God to keep his word, to bring this Messiah, this rescuer who's going to redeem and reconcile and restore humanity and creation. And we've been walking through these promises and we've been hopefully cultivating the ability to stand in waiting and actually believe the promises of God. And we've talked about how Jesus in his first coming is the advent or the arrival of grace into human existence. And what I want to do today is we wrap up a thrill of hope and move into Christmas next week where we're going to party like crazy on Christmas Eve. I want to wrap up by talking about Christmas through the lens of of humble rescue, humble rescue. And what I want you to think about for just a second is, if you were to get together with some of your most creative, strategic friends, and you didn't have the Bible, and the premise was the world is occupied territory. What I mean by that is the world is a place that's both beautiful, but incredibly broken. And if the idea was that this world is occupied by sin, Satan, and death, and it's a world that's enslaved to decay, it's a world that's occupied by forces of darkness that we see all around us, And you had to come up with a strategy for the eternal living God to invade that world with hope and with grace and with restoration. I just want you to think for a second, if you didn't have the Bible, if you didn't know about Jesus and you just knew that there was this eternal, immortal God who could do anything and this world that was enslaved to sin and death and darkness, what would be your strategy for God's invasion into that world? And I think like if I was to do that and I didn't have the Bible and I was just to whiteboard that thing out, I think my strategy would be something akin to like a shock and awe campaign, right? It would be big. It would be bold. It would be crazy. Um, It would be something kind of like Raiders of the Lost Ark where they open it up and the bad guy's faces get melted off. It would be It would be a display of God's power and all of the angels and his face shining and his voice thundering and all of the nations would see and it would be God flexing on evil. Now, here's what's interesting about that. When you look at what Christmas really is, God's invasion into humanity, his stepping into history, his establishing of a beachhead, it actually doesn't look like the allied invasion of occupied Western Europe. It doesn't look like a shock and awe campaign. It looks like a whisper. Like something about Christmas is just so flippin' counterintuitive to the way that we would invade a dark and enslaved world. It's just the opposite of what we would come up with what God does in Christmas is he actually sneaks in in the night and he covers himself and he veils his glory in flesh. And he moves into the brokenness of this world with a whisper instead of a shout. Christmas, Christmas is God invading human history with humility that actually boggles the mind. It's hard to even comprehend just how humble the story of Christmas is. And what's so fitting about that is that the world that we live in, that's full of beauty but full of brokenness, the world that we live in can trace every single ugly thing back to pride. C.S. Lewis put it like this He said, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice The utmost evil is pride, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. This is why people like St. Augustine said that pride is the mother of all sins. The Christian story, which is the telling of our history and the telling of God's intervention, it starts with creation being perfect without sin, death, or decay. And in that perfection, a lie is whispered to our first parents that goes something like this. If you're going to live the good life, If you're going to really be fulfilled, if you're going to really be happy, you can't trust God to be God and you to be his creation. You actually need to step into the place of God for yourself. Hence, pride. It was arrogance. And in that moment, here's what happens. Sin enters into creation. And um, I would just plead with you, especially if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're trying to figure out what the message of Jesus is, I would plead with you to sort of separate your cultural view of sin from a biblical view of sin because the cultural view of sin is that it's just sort of Midwestern taboos. It's like stuff that grumpy white dudes in their 40s are not pleased with. And what I plead with you to do is actually go back to the essence of sin as God describes it. And here's what you'll find. Like sin is not cultural taboo. Sin is actually crime against God. And the mother of those crimes against God, it's all rooted and grounded in this arrogance that says, I don't want God to be God. I would be a better God of my life and my universe and my stuff than him. And what happened in the beginning track with this is like this pride enters into creation. And instead of it just affecting one or two things, it has like cosmic ripples that touch everything. Pride leads out into sinful decay on every level. Man's relationship with God breaks. Man's relationship with man breaks. Man's relationship even with self breaks. The the creation itself gets subjected to futility, death and decay and entropy. Like everything goes wrong and chaotic because of our pride. So isn't it just a little bit fitting even though none of us would have been smart enough to come up with it? Isn't it just a little bit fitting that it was pride that undid the world and it's the humility of God that's going to remake it? <laughs> Isn't it fitting in a way that no human being could ever come up with that it's our pride that caused everything to spin into chaos and it's the humility of God that's going to set things right because of the work of Jesus? At the very heart of the Christmas story is not sentimental Hallmark cuteness. That's not the Christmas story. It's not about how sweet a baby look at the lambs. At the heart of the Christmas story is this rescuing humility that's so much more powerful than a shock and awe campaign because it actually can bring about change that confronts the corruption and decay inside our prideful hearts. So the Christmas story is the story of God moving towards humanity in humility to unwork everything that broke because of our pride. With that in mind, let me read this verse to you. It's so rich and beautiful. Second Corinthians eight, nine guy named Paul wrote this to a group of Christians in the city of Corinth. He said, do he said, for, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich Yet for your sakes, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Like, what he just did there is he took this thing called the gospel, which is the great news of who Jesus is and what he did and what he's going to do. He takes the great news of the the gospel and he frames it through the lens of riches and poverty. And what he says is, if you want to understand Jesus, understand that he abandoned his riches— And he willingly became poor on multiple levels so that his poverty would be way more than an example. It would have power to transform the lives of human beings. So what I want to do for just a few minutes tonight is I just want to talk about the humility of Christmas. I want to talk about just how dripping with life-changing humility this is. And I want to start with the supporting cast, right? Like there's supporting cast members in the Christmas story. And then I want to move from the supporting cast. And I want us to take a couple of minutes and talk about Jesus as the center and the radical humility of Christ. And then we'll end with how is his humility... How does his humility have the power to actually bring riches into the lives of human beings? And exactly what are those riches? So follow with me. How does Christmas, the story of humility, play its way out? Um, First of all, it plays out in a little girl named Mary. And this little girl named Mary is about as marginalized a human being as you could possibly be. Now, in in our culture, I'm I'm grateful to God that we're starting to have the conversation more often about marginalized people and marginalized people groups. And that's important to our church because we believe that the gospel gives us power to tell people about Jesus and also demonstrate the love of Jesus. But sometimes we throw the word marginalized around so much that it kind of becomes white noise in our culture. So when I say Mary is marginalized, here's what I mean. Like she is the most voiceless of the voiceless people that you could ever imagine. First of all, she's a 15-year-old, around 15, she's a 15-year-old woman in a Jewish culture that won't even allow women to testify in a court of law. So here's what her culture said, like, hey, um, you don't have enough personage to be an eyewitness and open your mouth and speak. You are gonna be relegated to the margins. You actually don't have a voice to testify. In addition, she couldn't own property. In addition to that, like, she was most likely completely illiterate and uneducated. So she's marginalized in her own Jewish culture, but then to track with this, like her Jewish culture is then marginalized by this Roman empire that's ruling over them that's even further pushing her and her people to the margins, So here's what's crazy about Christmas. Like the first character in the Christmas story is this 15-year-old girl who's totally poor. She has no voice. She has no vote. She has no place in society. She is a second-class citizen at best. And the living God chooses her to actually carry the seed who is going to be the Christ who brings life and redemption to the world. It's God flipping the script on everything we as human beings say is powerful and important. It's God saying, hey, you may marginalize her, but I give grace to the humble. Mary carries Jesus, and it's crazy that she gets chosen for that job. And and then the characters move out, and we can talk about Joseph. Joseph gets to be the stepdad of the unique, only begotten son of God. So just stop for a second and let that sink in. Um, If you were God the Father and you had to select a stepdad for your unique, only begotten son of God, what would be the qualifications that you would demand on his resume? Right, like What kind of education would you want him to have? What kind of credentials would you want him to have? What kind of power and prestige would you want him to have to give this Christ enough opportunities to have a life that would set him up for his calling to be the Savior of all of humanity? It would probably be a pretty powerful guy that you would imagine. He would be connected. He would be an educated man. Well, here's who God chooses. He picks a blue-collar worker that swings a hammer for a living. He picks a regular average guy who picks up a hammer and works with his hands, who has deep calluses, whose biggest daily concern is, how am I going to put food on the table to provide for this new family of mine? God selects this man named Joseph, this blue-collar worker who had no standing in society and, frankly, no future as society tends to measure a future. God selects him to be the steps, the stepdad of his son, Jesus. And then it moves out and we're introduced to the shepherds. And uh, if you have a nativity set, like if you don't have one, I probably have enough in my home to give one to each of you, right? That's just like a serious addiction. I don't know if it's my addiction or my wife's addiction, but somehow over the last 18 years of marriage, we've just acquired like every nativity set we've ever seen, (laughs) And here's what's funny about almost all nativity sets. They sort of highlight cuteness as the focus of the incarnation of Jesus. And that's played out with the shepherds who are kind of seen as like the ideal guys to have at your kid's birthday party. Because they're kind of like managers of a petting zoo. So you kind of imagine a shepherd, like he would show up for your kid's birthday party and he would have a lamb in his hand and he would make balloon animals and it would be awesome because he would totally get down on his hands and knees and play with your kids and it would be sweet and it would be cute and it would be wonderful. And of course you want the shepherds there at a party because they're a great time. Now, the problem with that is that the shepherds in Jesus's day were a part of a people group that were known collectively as unclean. Like they were there with tax collectors And prostitutes as a people group that were outside of the religious center of the life of Israel. They didn't go to the temple. They were ceremonially unclean. They had bad hygiene. They lived out in the wilderness. That's like my dream job. They lived out in the wilderness. They cooked their food over open fires. They like smelled bad. They were rough guys. And if you've ever hung out with friends that are like real oil patch roughnecks, I'm not talking about guys that have office jobs. We're not talking about the regular guy working at Devon and Chesapeake. I'm talking about a guy that lives in the oil patch, that's working on a rig out at sea, or that's constantly out in the field. You kind of might have an idea of what these shepherds were like. (laughs) Because those guys tend to be the kind of dudes that they're pretty rough around the edges. They live their lives in a rough way. They live their lives outside. They live their lives in a way that might not be considered by most church folk to be acceptable, Uh, most of my friends that work in the oil patch can sort of weave tapestries of profanity that that are almost impressive. Like, I had no idea you could use a cuss word to be a noun and a verb and an adjective all in one sentence. That's, like, I'm not saying you should do it, but I am saying, like, that's kind of Shakespearean, the way that you're working with language. That was the shepherds. And here's what God does. He picks this 15-year-old peasant girl to be a part of the story. He picks this blue-collar worker named Joseph to be a part of the story. And then he announces the birth of Jesus, his son, the king, to a group of rough shepherds that wouldn't have been accepted in the temple. They get to be a part of the story. And all of it is telling us something about this crazy upside-down kingdom he's bringing that begins with the humility of God. Well, then, then we have the wise men right? And you may think, well, I've heard about the wise men. That doesn't seem like a part of humility because those guys were super educated and they had a lot of money and they brought gold and gifts and they obviously were resourced. But here's what's crazy about the wise men. They were foreigners. And what was the hope of Israel? It was that this Messiah would be the son of Abraham, He would be the seed of David. He would be this Jewish man. And they sort of twisted the hope of Israel to just be a Jewish thing, even though God's promises was that it would be for all the nations of the earth. So here's what happens. You have a nation that's sort of suspicious at best and hateful at worst to folks that are other And now the birth of the Jewish Messiah comes and God orchestrates these weirdo guys from the East who are probably either Babylonian or Arab. And these guys with foreign languages and weird clothes and strange diets, they show up to actually worship at the feet of Jesus. That's humility. It's God saying, you may call them other, but all humanity is other to me and I'm making a way for them to come in through faith and repentance through Jesus. So you have Mary and you have Joseph and you have shepherds and you have wise men and all of it's preaching this message of God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble and then we get Jesus. I wanna talk about just how mind-blowingly humble Christmas is when you really understand who Jesus is. See, Jesus was not, Jesus was not just another good teacher. Jesus was not a man who had a great resume, who eventually attained the status of God because he was so wonderful. Jesus is something altogether different because Jesus in the incarnation is the one human being that's ever lived that is 100% God the second person of the Trinity, the Son, and 100% man, as human as you and me are, with flesh and blood and temptations and aches and pains and challenges and emotions, he's both of those things simultaneously. He is Jesus, the God-man, and this is where Christmas gets crazy. This is where it has the power to absolutely transform your life. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, the second person of the Trinity, equal with the Father, equal with the Spirit, not three gods, one God in three persons, eternally existing in equality and love and deference and love and fellowship. Though he existed in the form of God, listen to this, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Remember we said at the beginning, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 that he who was rich became poor, that he might make us who were poor rich. That's what Paul's saying in Philippians. He empties himself. He leaves heaven. He takes on flesh. And, and here's how he demonstrates crazy, rescuing, redeeming humility. I'll give you a few ways. First of all, it's humility in the fact that he was willing to take on flesh and become a human. God is spirit. Here's what Jesus does. It's crazy. The son of God, who the Bible describes as the word, and that just means he's like, he's like um, the perfection of the will and the desire of God. He's the power of God. He is God. The word that spoke the entire world into existence that said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be matter, and there was matter. He takes on flesh, this is crazy, and he grows from a little, he grows from a little tiny fetus in Mary's womb to the day of delivery. And he passes through her birth canal and he's born like all of us with blood and water. And then the one who holds the entire universe together by the word of his power, he gets his nourishment by nursing at his mother's breast. And the one who is without sin, he's going to take our place on the cross He's so humble in his humanity, he actually depends upon his mom and his dad to change his diapers and keep him clean. And Where is he born? He's not born in a palace. He's not even born in a hospital. He's born in a manger. And again, we think as Americans, nativity set, mangers are great. I would love to go to a vacation in a manger, The truth is, a manger is just another fun way to say barn or stable. In Bethlehem, a manger would have usually been somewhat like a cave that animals were kept in to protect them from predators. It it would have been full of animal waste, poop and pee on the ground. It would have stunk. There would have been flies buzzing around. And the Son of God is born not in a palace, not in a hospital, not even a house. He's born in a humble, lowly manger. And he's surrounded by stinking animals. Martin Luther put it like this in a great Christmas sermon he preached. He said, do you know what staples smell like? Do you know what that family would have smelled like after the birth when they went into the city? If they were standing next to you, how would you have felt about them and regarded them? Well, we probably would have like crossed over to the other side of the street to get away from them crazy humility. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the son of God, he's born of a virgin in a manger, takes on flesh. And then he not only is born in humility, but he lives a life of humility. Jesus's earliest memories would have been his family being refugees in the land of Egypt. I don't know about you guys, but I'm having a real hard time knowing how to even engage what's happening in Syria other than just praying. Like, what do we do? How do we help? It's so devastating and awful to see these families with little babies fleeing for their lives and to hear stories of people trying to resettle, to just hear about how violence is devastating entire communities. Well, Jesus, Jesus was like one of those little kids that you see on television, His family fled from his hometown and they left all the way to Egypt to try to carve out a life for themselves while this guy named Herod was looking to kill Jesus. And then Jesus does really crazy, humble things for the God man to do. Like he grows and learns. I don't even know how that is possible. He does. He grows and learns. He submits and obeys his sinful parents that he's going to have to die for. He submits to them. He endures all the difficulties of being a young boy going through puberty and having hormones. Jesus goes through that. He learns a trade and works a job. He, he goes to the age of 30 without even preaching a sermon. He's just living in obscurity. He's tempted in all the ways that we're tempted. He's ultimately rejected by his family, rejected by his best friends, and even rejected by the very nation he came to rescue. <laughs> He's born in humility. He lives in humility. His life was a hard life. Isaiah, the prophet, about 700 years before the birth of Jesus, said that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He lived a really hard, humble life. And this leads us to the third thing. Jesus was born in humility, <clears throat> and he lived in humility but he was born and he lived in humility so that he could die in humility. And I just say to those of you that are my friends that are not followers of Jesus and you're trying to ask questions and this is a safe church for you to do that. I would just say to you, it's tempting to try to say like, I love the Christmas Jesus cause that's inspirational, but I just don't get, I don't get the good Friday Jesus. And I don't know if I can believe in the resurrection Easter Jesus. And what I would want to show you is that there's not three versions of Jesus. There's one Jesus. And, and his birth was a birth that was a part of this crazy eternal prehistory plan for redemption and reconciliation to happen through his death. J.I. Packard wrote this For the Son of God to empty himself and become poor men a laying aside of glory, a voluntary restraint of power, an acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill treatment, malice, and misunderstanding. Finally, a death that involves such agony, spiritual, even more than physical, that his mind nearly broke under the prospect of it. Jesus was born to submit to death. Now we have to stop here for a second and we have to go back to that verse that we started with in the beginning. Scripture says he was rich and he made himself poor so that we who were poor might be made rich. And we have to ask ourselves this really big question. Like this has all been good information and maybe it's helpful. Maybe it's interesting and maybe you feel something in your soul rising up. But like, what does this have to do with making human beings that are in poverty rich? Where's the power in this to change lives? Where's the grace in this to lift me and to change my life and to actually do something deep and meaningful in my soul? And what I would say is the answer to that question is not first and foremost, well, he was humble to be an example so that you could try to be more humble. There's a limit to how helpful an example is, correct? And thank God that examples come along in our lives and we can learn stuff from them. Like I got to do some spearfishing recently Free diving, and I was with this marine biologist, and this guy is a beast in the water. He can, with one breath of air, swim down to over well over a hundred feet. He can shoot a fish and he can get back to the surface safely uh, while like fighting off sharks he 's like aquaman it 's like a real life aquaman and, and I love freediving and spearfishing and I got to be with this guy as like a mentor and learn from him and I learned so much stuff he was a fantastic example but I am still mediocre in the water it didn't transform me it didn't change me it helped me grow a little bit but it was incremental growth it wasn't transformative growth Here's what you got to understand. When the Bible talks about his poverty has the power to make you rich, it's way more than the life of Jesus being an example for you to try to follow so that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try to be a more humble person. There's power in this story in these ways. Let me give them to you quickly. First of all, the humble rescue that God sends for us at Christmas, number one, has power because it can humble you. It can actually humble you. See, The scripture says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And and I don't know if that really hits me the way that it should hit me, but here's another way to hear that. Um, To the prideful, the living God who is eternal and holy and fiery and magnificent, who created great white sharks out of his own imagination, that God actively opposed those that are prideful. But he gives grace to the humble. And what happens in the telling of the good news of Jesus is not just the transfer of information, but when you hear about his birth and his death, taking on your sin and being the sacrifice, and you hear about his resurrection, what happens is more than any other message in the whole world, God the Holy Spirit takes the news of Jesus and he uses it to tenderize, soften, and pierce. Hard and prideful hearts. If you're a Christian today, it's because at some point you heard the news about Jesus and your prideful hard heart got softened by the Holy spirit. And here's what you came to the realization of like, what kind of God would do this for me? Like, I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. I can't contribute to it. All I can do is in humility throw up my hands and receive grace as a gift. That's all I brought to the table was my sin. He brought everything glorious to the table and I get to get it without earning it. It's a message that has the power to humble us. Secondly, it has the power to lift us. And what I mean by this is, the humility of Christmas has the power to invite you to see your heart as a manger that Jesus would delight in laying in Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He says, Oh, but my heart is not a fit place for Christ. Nor was the manger a fit place for him. Yet there he laid. Oh, but I've been such a sinner. I feel as if my heart had been a den of beasts and devils. Well, the manger had been a place where beasts had fed. Have you no room for him? Never mind what the past has been. He can forget and forgive. It mattereth not what even the present state may be if thou mournest it. If thou hast but room for Christ, he will come and be thy guest. Here's what's so crazy about the message of the gospel. Like, the moments that you and me are really honest, which are pretty rare for human beings... But the moments where we can be really honest, there is some really embarrassing, shameful stuff that goes on between our ears and inside of this heart of ours. Like if our best friends got a glimpse of what we were really thinking and feeling, it would be really hard to feel like they were still going to love us and accept us. The lust that goes through our heads and hearts, the greed, the anger, the violence the prejudice and that's just between humans. Then you add on top of that, the idolatry that we're constantly taking stuff. That's not God and asking it to be God like money. That's going to fulfill me or sex. That's going to fulfill me or family or career. We're constantly, we're constantly finding new things inside of us that are really scary and really dark and really embarrassing. And what Christmas has the power to remind you of is that, Jesus, the Son of God, was not too great and grand and holy to condescend to be laid in a filthy manger. He willingly made it his bed. Here's what that means it means there's stuff going on inside of you that is really off. And there's stuff going on inside of me that's really off, that smells a lot like a manger. But the living God is not deterred by that. He doesn't want to draw away from you through the life and death of Jesus. He wants to move toward you. He wants to make his habitation in you through the Holy Spirit. He wants to work in you from the inside out. He wants to lift you. The message of Christmas has the power to humble you. It has the power to lift you as you realize that he wants to justify you and fill you by grace through faith. And and thirdly, it has the power to send you. Christmas has the grace to send you because Christmas is the story of a God who is the first and best and last true missionary. He's the God that had a country known as heaven. And I don't know a whole lot about what it's like, but I know it's not like earth. I know it's not a place where there's sickness and disease and war and racism and kids getting blown up in the streets. I know it's not a place where people kill each other and objectify each other and use each other. I know it's not a place where people worship all kinds of created silly trinkets instead of the living God. I know it's a place of light and life and beauty and holiness. I know it's a place that's glorious and beautiful. And here's what Jesus does. He totally leaves it to come and be a missionary to earth. It's crazy. He comes here to learn our language to learn the culture of the people he was going to reach like a missionary to be close to them, to be around them, to spend time with them. And in so doing, as he takes on flesh, here's what, here's what's happening. That idea that there's those kind of people. And then there's my kind of people. It gets blown up by Christmas. Tim Keller puts it really well. He says, Christmas is the end of snobbishness. It's the end of thinking, Oh, that kind of person. Because to somebody, there's a those people to you. Uh, You might not admit it out loud. You certainly wouldn't put it on social media. But there's somebody, there's some group in our city, you would say, oh, those are those people. And you're those people to somebody. But the message of Christmas is this, you're not those people to the living God. He came towards you and me through Christmas to draw near to us, to bring redemption and life and hope to people that were hopeless. What that means is what that means is you might be those people out there to somebody else, but you're not those people to Jesus. And that invites us to be a going people. Cause we have a going God. Finally, I'll end with this. Where's the power to make you rich? Well, it's this awesome gospel message that humbles you and then it lifts you with hope and with life. And then it sends you out with love for others as you realize what God's done for you. And then lastly, say this, the humble message of Christmas is the answer to the problem of suffering and evil in the world. It's the answer to suffering and evil in the world. Without Christmas, the horrors of this world would lead me to a few different conclusions without Christmas. The first conclusion might be this world has so much evil that if there is a God, he's either harsh and all-powerful or he's weak and he's kind. Because how can there be a world where kids kids are getting blown up by bombs? How can there be a world like that? How can, be there, how can there be a world where the leading cause of death is dehydration due to diarrhea for little kids? How can there be a world that malaria wipes out millions of folks on this planet when there's medications that can deal with it? How can there be a world that's so jacked up where we abuse and murder and objectify and and tsunamis, like it's not just what we do to each other. It's creation itself is jacked up. People get wiped out by hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes. So if it wasn't for Christmas, I would think, okay, maybe there's a God that's really powerful, but he doesn't really care about us. Or maybe there's a God that really cares about us, but he's not really powerful. Or maybe he's just the God of the deist. Like, and what I mean by that, deists just believe that, yeah, there's a God. He's the uncaused cause. He created everything, but then he just sort of pitched it all out into space and said, good luck. He's not involved. He's not here. He's not active. Or maybe without Christmas, you would arrive at the conclusion that believing in God is just a fairy tale crutch for people that are too terrified and weak to stare into the void of a meaningless life and still go on living. But hear me. The greatest apologetic for the living God and the greatest answer to suffering and evil in this world is Christmas. It's not an elaborate philosophical answer. It's that the living God steps into the brokenness of this world, out of the safety of heaven. He takes on flesh to taste of every manner of suffering humanity's tasted of, so that through his suffering, he could actually bring it to an end that he might reconcile, renew, and redeem all things. Tim Keller says, God so hates suffering and evil that he was willing to come into it and become enmeshed in it. Jesus, willing to be born, to know he was going to die and be rejected and suffer and have our sin placed on him, It's the great answer to the evil of this world. And now he's working through this message and through his church to bring reconciliation and redemption, and he will ultimately one day even bring renewal of all things where every tear is wiped away. And all that's possible because he came. I wouldn't want to worship and love a God that refused to live his, to leave his gated neighborhood. <laughs> He came. He left a really good neighborhood heaven for a really bad neighborhood earth. He did it out of love.